Well, uh, welcome everyone to lesson three in our uh, guided Bible study of the book of Ruth. Uh, if you have not watched the, the previous two lessons, those are available on our website at riverstone.church, so you can find those there. So, as we uh, hop into to the book, I just want to remind you, last week uh, we were looking at the, the prologue of the book. Uh, so that is the first five verses where we learn about kind of the background of what, everything that's going on in the book. And that sets up the, the narrative. And the narrative really will run from, from chapter 1, verse 6, all the way to chapter 4, verse 17. And then uh, there's a little epilogue at the end uh, that's very important in the book, but kind of bookends uh, the, the narrative. So last week we looked we looked just at this one narrative here at uh, this interaction primarily between Naomi and Ruth on the road from Moab to Judah and uh, what we see happening in, in there and that, that uh, Naomi, who's been bereft of her husband and children and is living in this foreign land of Moab uh, with her two Moabite daughters-in-law, uh, determines to re return to her homeland in uh, Israel, in Judah. Uh, she's from Bethlehem. And uh, tells her daughters-in-law, don't come back with me. Uh, and one of them goes, but Ruth uh, will not. Ruth will will uh, insist on continuing on with Naomi. And in so doing, she demonstrates not only that she's loyal to Naomi, uh, but also that she has transferred uh, her most fundamental loyalty and identity to the God of Israel. Uh, she's rejected her her false gods uh, that she and her family and her people worshipped in Moab and has embraced faith in the God of Israel. And so she is determined to go back to the land of Israel with Naomi. And um, they return uh, to, to Bethlehem and, uh, and chapter 1 ends with sort of the summary statement, Naomi returned... And with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem. And then it ends with this line, at the beginning of the barley harvest. And um, that's more than just setting up uh, when it was that they returned, right? That's more than just a, a sort of a, a detail, a historical detail. It's It's also a statement about what's coming in the subsequent chapter. So the author is kind of dropping a hint at what's coming in chapter 2 when we're going to be in a field. And it's a barley field. And uh, like uh, the, the, the story of Ruth and Naomi on the road, the story in the field follows the same kind of narrative pattern that we typically see. There's a, a setting and there's tension uh, that, that drives the plot forward. And then there's this rising action or building tension as the story moves forward. And then there's a turning point and then a sort of resolution uh, where everything begins to slow down and get set up for the next um, sort of narrative cycle in the story, which will be in chapter three. So, but chapter two follows that pattern and... Uh, and you'll be able to see it. Remember, it kind of kind of looks like this, like an arc, right? And so there's a setting and the tension point and then this rising tension until we get to the turning point and then resolution 
and then into chapter 3. So you can see here how I've kind of broken up the setting and the tension is is really we, we start at the end of verse uh, chapter 1 uh, and verse 22. Uh, setting and tension goes to, to verse 2 in chapter 2. The rising action or the building tension is verses 3 to 17, so it's a big chunk of the story. The turning point, I'll argue, is actually in verses 19 and 20, which may be a little bit different than you might think having just read the book uh, or, or read the chapter, but uh, I want to explain to you why I think that. And then the resolution there at the end gets us set up for the next story, which is going to move this whole story of Ruth forward. Remember, as 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 we're looking at just this story here today, just this element, this this scene of the story, we have to remember how it fits into the whole uh, episode, this narrative of of what is happening in Naomi's family, and that the story really is about Naomi's bitter emptiness and then blessed restoration. And so, if we saw Naomi's bitter emptiness here in chapter one. Now we're going to see how things begin to build uh, through chapters 2, 3, and 4 to her blessed restoration. And so uh, remember that just like this section here is uh, has this kind of narrative curve, uh, the whole book of Ruth does as well. And if chapter 1 sets up the setting and, and really the tension... And then chapters 2, 3, and 4, till we get to here in chapter 4, set up uh, this building tension up to the turning point and then a, and then a resolution. Uh, and so that's kind of the, the pattern that we're, that we're after. So we'll work through chapter 2 here as we go. So again, starting in verse 22 of chapter 1, just sort of set up. Where we're at, Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. So the scene is set up. This is where we pick up in, in scene two, right? Beginning in chapter two. Now, Naomi had a kinsman of her husband, a man of great wealth of the family of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, verse 2 is going to have a pretty stark break with verse 1, right? So verse 1 introduces somewhat randomly this guy named Boaz. Now, we know that he's going to be a main character in, in the book. If you've read the whole book, you know he plays a huge role. He's one of the three main human characters in the book alongside Naomi and Ruth. But after introducing him here in verse 1, it, it sort of moves on from him. And it goes right back to Ruth and Naomi. right? So you have here in, in verse 22, you have Ruth and Naomi. And here in verse 2, you have Ruth and Naomi. And right in the middle, you have Boaz. And so this is sort of, just from kind of a storytelling standpoint, this is sort of like a big parenthesis. Right? It, it, it's like the... It's like an afterthought. It's like the author saying, oh, by the way, did I mention that Elimelech had this cousin named Boaz, who was a real stand-up guy? Well, anyway, and then, he, and then he goes on. So at the beginning of this story, we have this kind of strange and, and somewhat random statement about, about Boaz. 
and and I think that's important because I think that tells us something about what the author wants us uh, wants us to see in this chapter, and I think is actually going to to aid in uh, in helping us discern what what the turning point or the climax of this part of the story is, and really what the author wants us to 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 be focusing on, and, and, and we'll talk about that as we go. So. Of course, we know this is not random. It's the Word of God, and so the Spirit has a, a reason for putting in here. The author has a reason for putting in here. Um, and and it can be hard for us to maybe think along the, the lines of a, of a first-time reader with this, because oftentimes we're so used to knowing, oh, well, the story's about, you know, Ruth and Boaz. Um, so we know who Boaz is, and we're excited that, oh, now he's introduced to us. You don't remember that if you're reading this for the first time, this may seem like, well, why why should I care about who Boaz is? Why does this matter? Um, right? So it can be hard to hear a story as it's intended when we're when we're relatively familiar with it. So we have to do our best to, to put aside what we know is coming and listen to it as if it's the first time we're hearing it. If we want to really have the, the, the full effect that's intended by the story. We learn a couple important things about Boaz here. We'll come back to Boaz, but we learn a couple important things about Boaz right here. We learn that he's a, a kinsman of her of, of Naomi's husband. Uh, and uh, that that's repeated again, right? So it's a kinsman of her husband of the family of Elimelech, right? So you have this parallelism, kinsman, family, husband, Elimelech. And it seems like the author wants to highlight that. So he's repeated basically twice uh, in the span of a sentence that this person is related to Naomi in some way. This is, uh, this is someone from her husband's family, and so they're legally related. Um, and, and remember, we see this repetition of this, and that might indicate something to us about what the author wants us to know, that that, that thing that's repeated might be important. And then between those two things, we learn that he's a... Uh, according to the, the New American Standard translation, which is what we're using, a man of great wealth. But the word great wealth here may actually uh, be something a bit more ambiguous in Hebrew. It can be used to mean a couple different things. It certainly can be used to describe somebody who's very wealthy and prominent in society. And it appears that Boaz was that. We learn later that he owns a field and has servants that work for him and is highly respected in Bethlehem. But it can also be uh, be used to refer to a person of high moral character, high integrity. We find that Boaz actually uses this word in chapter 3 to describe Ruth because of her character. So it's quite possible that we're actually to, to understand sort of a double meaning here. So we'll find that, that both of these descriptions, both a man who's wealthy and prominent and a man who is of high moral character, both those things are true of Boaz, and so it may be that, that both are intended uh, by the author. And so I, I actually really like the way um, that the, the, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible, has translated this. He calls, uh, they call Moab uh, a prominent man of noble character. prominent man of noble character. I think that fits well what's kind of intended in the Hebrew word. So that's what we learn about Boaz so far. He's related to Naomi, and he's a prominent man of noble character. 
and then we we push him aside for a second uh and and forget that that he's there and we go back to this scene with Ruth and Naomi and so this sets up where we're going in in the uh, the story Ruth the Moabitess just in case you were you were to forget that she was from Moab she was not from Israel she was a foreigner Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi Please let me go to the field to glean among the ears of grain, after one in whose sight I may find favor. And she, that's Naomi, said to her, Go, my daughter. Now, without any background information, really, we just hear that Ruth asks Naomi. We don't know when this was. You know, was it right when they returned? Uh, or was it a few days later or weeks later? We, we don't know, but Ruth... Uh, comes to Naomi and asks for permission to go and glean in the fields. This is important because it indicates uh, uh, that um, Naomi and Ruth found themselves uh, back in Bethlehem, but in great need. Um, They needed food. The reason why Ruth would ask to go and, and glean is because they didn't have the means to get food the normal way, either by farming themselves or by buying it from others. So Ruth goes, uh, asks Naomi to go out into the field, and hopefully she's going to find somebody uh, in whose sight she will find favor. She doesn't know who that is. She's just uh, hoping and, and, and maybe implicitly praying um, that she is going to find favor in the sight of of some farmer or some field owner who will allow her to glean uh, in her field. Now, gleaning was a practice that was actually part of Israelite law. You see this in uh, Leviticus 19, 9 and 10. You see it in Leviticus 23, 22, and then especially Deuteronomy 24, 19, which says, When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten the sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, or the foreigner, the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. And so written into Israelite law was this practice where farmers were not to pick up every single scrap of food uh, that was dropped as they were harvesting. Um, that they were to allow the, the 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 grains and the ears that that fall on the ground as they're uh, bundling up the the sheaves um, to to stay there, so that widows, orphans, and foreigners, again the most vulnerable people in society, could go and and get food. It was sort of like a a, a built-in system to care for the poor. Uh, and that was that was God's command what Israel would do. So Ruth is asking to to go uh, for permission to go and see if anyone will show her grace and let her glean right, to pick up the dropped barley that the harvesters leave behind. And of course, the reason she would do this is because they don't have any food. I don't think you would choose to do this if you um, if you had other means by which you could get food. And the fact that Ruth is is uh, hoping that she's going to find favor with somebody. Again, this this word, this is the Hebrew word for for grace. Um, the the reason that she's hoping she's going to find favor with somebody, uh, the, the fact that she says this 
it means that she recognizes that just because these stipulations about gleaning are in place in Israelite law doesn't mean that anyone's actually following it. Remember, these are the days of the judges when there's no king in Israel and everyone does what's right in their own eyes. So there's no guarantee that these people are actually law-abiding, godly Israelites who are going to allow her, a foreign widow, to glean from their fields. But Ruth takes the initiative. She says, I, I want to go try. We need food. And Naomi consents. And so this, this sets up where we're going in, in the, this uh, scene in the narrative. And there's sort of three interlocking tension points at this point. All right? um, there's, there's this overall tension point for, for the whole story, which is what's going to happen to Naomi's family? Right? And that's that's carried on from chapter one, and that fo- flows through until the end of the book. So that's sort of the whole this whole uh, overarching for for the entire book of Ruth. This kind of question is what's going to happen to Naomi and her family, right? Remember, in chapter one, she called herself bitter and empty, and so and and that just kind of is left hanging at the end of chapter one. And so there's this tension that's left over that that's going to build until we get to chapter four. What's going to happen to her? Is is she is she going to continue to be bitter and empty, or is she going to be refilled? Is the Lord going to provide for her? And number two, there's this very practical tension point within the story, uh, which is that Ruth and Naomi need food. That's going to drive this story forward in terms of just kind of what happens in, in the plot. Um, and uh, so, so the question, how, how are they going to survive? They're widows, Ruth's a foreigner, in a place where that meant you're going to be the most vulnerable in society. Um, Being back in Bethlehem, as they came back to Bethlehem at the end of chapter 1, that doesn't necessarily solve all the problems. Um, Ruth's chosen to come with Naomi out of her loyalty to her mother-in-law, and more importantly, her newfound faith in the God of Israel. Um, And Ruth is confident enough that God is going to provide for them, that she's willing to to leave the comforts of Moab for the uncertainty and possible destitution of Judah. And that's where they find themselves here. And so the the second tension point is how will Ruth and Naomi get food? How are they going to survive? And finally, there's there's a third tension point. And I think this is a little more subtle, but I think this is actually maybe more important. Um, And from our perspective as readers, we're we're introduced to it uh, right away. The fact that, 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 Chapter 2 begins here with this statement about Boaz, but it doesn't give us a whole lot more than just he was related to Naomi and he was a good guy. Um, Leaves us wondering, who's Boaz? Who's Boaz? Why is he important? I think the narrator invites us to ask that question by putting this otherwise random statement about Boaz up front in the chapter, but not elaborating on it at all. We we get the impression that he's going to be important somehow, but we don't exactly know why, and it won't be until the end of the chapter that we really find out why that is. And I think that's where uh, the the main turning point in, in the chapter is, particularly as it pertains to the rest of the whole story and driving forward how we answer this question, what is going to happen to Naomi's family? 
So that's the tension. Now we're going to move to the principal part of the narrative, the, the rising action or how that tension builds uh, as the plot moves along. So verse three, so she, that's Ruth, departed and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. All right, so Ruth gets out to the field surrounding the town. She hoped to, to glean after him in whose sight I shall find favor. But at this point, she doesn't have any guarantee about what she's going to find. So she goes to the field. And then we have this wonderful little line. And she happened to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz. Just in case you forgot, the narrator then adds, uh, who was of the family of Elimelech, right? Even though two verses earlier, we knew that, right? He says it again. She just so happens to come to the portion of the field belonging to Boaz, who, by the way, in case you forgot, was of the family of Elimelech. This is the, the author trying to draw us in and say, this is an important point. Remember this. This little phrase, uh, and she happened... Uh, is uh, actually translates the Hebrew phrase, her chance chanced upon part of the field belonging to Boaz. Uh, one commentator that I, I was reading this week uh, translated it as, um, and by sheer luck, she came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And I think that captures the idea well. Now you might say, uh, but we don't really believe in luck or chance, right? I mean, so why does the Bible use that language? I think the answer is that the narrator is using this, this rhetorical device to highlight something. If you were listening, sitting to him tell the story, this is the part of the story where he would wink, right? Uh, and then, it just so happened that by sheer dumb luck, wink, Ruth came to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. The way the author puts it, doesn't actually commend thinking of this as luck or chance, but instead it actually serves to highlight the complete opposite. What appears to have just been Ruth's good fortune, right? She just, she just kind of wandered into the field, is in fact the result of the sovereign hand of God. Now, theologically, this is what we call God's providence. Uh, the fact that God governs and guides all things to accomplish his purposes. And, and it would seem, in particular, this is uh, an example of what we call more specifically God's meticulous providence. Uh, that is, the fact that God has ordained and is in complete control of everything that occurs, right down uh, to to where Ruth chooses to go, right? Now, this is done in such a way that it does not remove human responsibility or moral obligation, um, but, but God uh, guides uh, secretly and superintends the actions of people to accomplish his purposes. And there's a sense in which providence is actually just the other side of the coin of miracles, right? If miracles are God's extraordinary acts where he breaks in and suspends the laws of nature to accomplish his purpose, then providence is God's 
extraordinarily ordinary acts, where he accomplishes his purposes through the normal circumstances of life. And this is important. Where God is not said to do a whole lot in the book of Ruth. Right? There are two times that it's actually said that he does something. Chapter 1, he visits the people to give them food. And in chapter 4, spoiler alert, he will cause Ruth to conceive. But other than that, he's remarkably silent. He doesn't speak in the book, and it's only those two times that it says he actually acts. Yet we know... Uh, that he's not silent, and we know he's not uh, he's not idle. We know he's working in the background. And the fact that the author uses this kind of language, um, it's kind of very ironic language, um, about Ruth just happening to find herself in Boaz's field, it's meant to highlight for us that although it might appear that God isn't working, in fact, he's actually doing more than you could ever imagine. So we move that into verse 4. Ruth wanders into to Boaz's field, apparently at random, but under the sovereign guidance of God. And then verse 4. Now behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. The phrase, again, now behold, is, is uh, maybe some, we would translate it something more like lo and behold, uh, although that's uh, a bit kind of archaic in, in the way that we talk. Um, something more like, and look who it is. Um, this is another rhetorical play by the narrator to highlight God's providential movement in the story. It's as if he said, so Ruth went out to glean, and she just so happened to come to the part of the field owned by Boaz. And, well, wouldn't you know it, Boaz himself just happened to show up at the very same field at the very same time. Imagine that. So God has guided Ruth to this field. He's also uh, providentially brought Boaz to the field, which he owns. But at this particular time, as Ruth is there, and so we see God orchestrating already what's going on. And, and we're like, okay, well, what's the Lord doing here? Um, you know, he's he's not telling them. He's not, he didn't say, hey, Boaz, make sure you go to the field today. There's a woman I'd like for you to meet. He doesn't tell Ruth. Ruth, go to the field uh, that's owned by Boaz. He's a pretty good guy. You might want to meet him, right? It just kind of, uh, God silently orchestrates this uh, to, to seamlessly accomplish his purpose. Now, we start to learn a little bit more about Boaz here, right? We've already seen that Boaz is a man of high character and wealth. Verse 1 says so, and we see here in verse 3 that that he, he, he owns a portion of the field. And now we begin to learn more things about him, and really you're going to continue to learn more things about him for the rest of the chapter. We've already seen that he's a good man. He's high character, high integrity. Now we're going to see that he is, more importantly, a godly man. So he comes to the field, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and said to the reapers, so all the, 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 the men who were working for him, May the Lord be with you. And they said to him, may the Lord bless you. Right, so there's this, this greeting between Boaz and, and his reapers. And at a time in Israel when it seems that not many people were following the Lord, remember this is the time of the judges, Boaz and his servants appear to be faithful to God. 
Um, this is not just, uh, I think, a standard greeting um, that uh, that people use, regardless of whether or not they uh, they believe in in God. It's, it's it's not like saying God bless you when you sneeze, right? An atheist can say that. Uh, this is something different. This is, I think, an authentic uh, prayer and and benediction given to uh, by Boaz to his workers and 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 then the workers to him in return. I think this demonstrates that here in in Bethlehem, at least here among the the people associated with Boaz, there's at least a a, a group of faithful, God fearing, believing Israelites. And then. Uh, we're we're going to see this the the fact of Boaz's godliness kind of uh, expand over the chapter. We'll see more examples of uh, of why we would uh, say that he is certainly a godly man. And then in verses five to seven, we have this this interaction between Boaz and the the foreman, uh, the his servant who is in charge of the reapers. So Boaz comes to the field, and greets his, his workers, and then he said to the servant who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Obviously, we're to, uh, to think that he's referring to Ruth. He probably assumes that Ruth, as a young woman, has a father or a brother or a husband to, to, to care for her. And so he's sort of asking, um, what family does this woman belong to? And the servant in charge of the reapers replied, well, she is the young Moabite woman who returned with Naomi from the land of Moab. Again, in case you didn't remember that she was a Moabite, the foreman reminds you, she's a Moabite who came from Moab. And there may be a little bit of, uh, of sort of derision implied in this. Um, it, it's possible that the foreman is a little frustrated that this foreign widow uh, is is trying to to glean in the field. We don't know that for sure. It's possible. Uh, it may just be that he was saying this is she's the Moabite that came back with uh, Naomi when they came back from Moab. Right. And and then he says, well, the the Moabite came. Ruth came, though we don't. She, neither of them say her name at this point. She says, please let me glean and gather after the reapers among the sheaves. Then he continues, Thus she came and has remained from the morning until now. She has been sitting in the house for a little while. And so Ruth has showed up, and, and now the foreman's saying, Look, she came, she came to the field. She's been here since the morning, uh, and uh, apparently she's taken a bit of a rest. There's, a, there's probably some shelter where um, the, the workers could, could get shade from the sun and, uh, and rest. Uh, for a while during the harvest, so it's possible that Ruth has is, is, uh, been sitting in, in this little shelter or hut for, for a while uh, as, as Boaz has come. So Boaz probably has, has come, has found the foreman at this hut, sees Ruth there and says, wait, whose woman is this? And says, well, he's been, she's been in the, in the house for a little while, um, but, but she's really been, been working from the time she got here uh, uh, until very recently. And so Boaz, again, we still have no guarantee that, that Boaz is going to allow Ruth to glean in the field. We assume so because we've already heard that he's a good man. Um, 
And now we get this the first interaction between Boaz and Ruth. So verses 8 to 16 is uh, Boaz and Ruth have this interaction, and Boaz shows this remarkable kindness and generosity to Ruth. So he says to her, Listen carefully, my daughter. Uh, Naomi used this in uh, in two two, right? Naomi called Ruth my daughter, uh, and and I think it's both it's both a term uh, of uh, that, that that indicates a difference in age. Uh, Boaz were probably uh, supposed to take as being probably in Naomi's age bracket uh, if he was a, a close relative of Elimelech. Uh, and it also probably is a term of a sort of paternal or familial instinct. Um, Boaz knows that he and Naomi are related. And so he knows that this person is very important to Naomi and, and is in fact a, a member, a legally a member of Naomi's family. But Ruth doesn't know that yet. Uh, but Boaz is treating her as such. We're going to see exactly how he does that in the coming verses. So then he says... Listen carefully, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field. Furthermore, do not go on from this one, but stay here with my maids. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap and go after them. Indeed, I have commanded the servants not to touch you. When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. So Boaz, uh, one, insists that she stay in his field. Don't go glean in another field. Do not go on from this one. Stay here with my maids, my young, my young women. Um, and and so he's saying, you stay here, glean here. I'm going to provide that for you. Let your eyes be on the field which they reap. Go after them. And then he also is going to offer her protection. I have commanded my servants not to touch you. Um, this is probably a prohibition of, uh, of either physical or sexual abuse. Again, we're in the days of the judges, and this kind of thing was rampant in Israel. If you read the book of Judges, you see how terribly women were abused. Probably would have been even worse for a Moabite woman in Israel. And so he says, you stay here, glean in my field. I've already commanded all of my servants not to touch you, not to abuse you. Uh, you have my protection. And then he says, When you are thirsty, go to the water jars and drink from what the servants draw. So he tells her she can drink from the water that his servants draw from the well. And this is significant generosity. Because normally it's the foreigners who would draw water for the Israelites. And it's the women who would draw water for the men. And here, the reverse is true on both accounts. As Boaz is being uh, very generous. He's, he's, he's doing more than the law commands. He was not commanded uh, to, to offer protection uh, for those who were gleaning. He was not commanded to offer them water. Um, he was not co commanded to, to insist that they glean from his field. So he does all of those things for Ruth. He's very, very generous. In verse 10, Ruth recognizes how generous this is. She falls on her face. This is a sign of great uh, um, thankfulness and, and humility. She bows to the ground and says to him, Why 
have I found favor in your sight that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. Right? Ruth had been hoping that she would find favor in someone's sight, and she has in, 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 in Boaz. And she's overwhelmed. So why have I found favor in your sight? And she's especially astonished because she's a foreigner. She said, of all people to not find favor in your sight, uh, it would be me. I am a foreign widow. Why have you shown me this grace, this unmerited favor? And then Boaz responds. And Boaz responds, replies to her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. May the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from God, from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. So Boaz clearly knows who Ruth is. Though, though Ruth does not have any idea who Boaz is, Boaz says, I know, I've been told everything that you've done for your mother-in-law. It's been reported to me. Specifically, how you left your father and mother and the land of your birth, and you came to a people that you did not previously know, and that you have... Uh, come to seek refuge in the God of Israel. I've heard about how, how you've done all of this. And, and, and he offers this, this, this benediction or, or prayer or blessing. He says, may the Lord reward your work and your wages be full from the Lord. This is an interesting juxtaposition with the emptiness uh, that Naomi talks about in chapter one, right? We we have this this um, this sort of interplay between the ideas of emptiness and fullness as we go through the book. And Naomi has talked about how she was full, and and now she's empty. And now Boaz says, "I'm going to pray that the Lord is going to to cause you to be full, because you've come to seek refuge." under his wings and you're demonstrating that that faith in your love and loyalty for your mother-in-law right now what's really cool about this is that boaz is in some sense blissfully unaware that he's actually being used by the lord to do uh, this very thing right to reward her uh, for her wages to be full from the lord He's providing her with food. But he's also going to take a much more significant role in blessing Ruth and Naomi in the coming chapters. I think something to be aware of here is that God's providence is at work. Right? Boaz prays the Lord is going to reward Naomi. He's going to, to fill her, uh, or, or Ruth that is. is going to reward Ruth's work. It's going to, to fill Ruth um, and yet it is not that that happens in some miraculous 
a supernatural way. It happens in a very ordinary way. It happens through Boaz, whether he realizes it or not. And Ruth responds again, I have found favor in your sight, my Lord, for you have comforted me and indeed have spoken kindly to your maidservant. This would be this kind of, literally this is, uh, he spoke to her heart. It's this kind of gentleness and compassion. You've shown compassion. You've been gentle to your maidservant. Though I am not like one of your maidservants, that you've treated me like like one of your 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 young women, one of your servants, but I'm not. In fact, I'm the exact opposite of that. I'm I'm a foreign widow. So Ruth recognizes that she's receiving a a, a remarkably gracious provision uh, from uh, from Boaz. I think ultimately from God. And then verse 14, Boaz shows her more generosity. He calls her over during lunch. Listen, at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here that you may eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. So she sat beside the reapers and he served her roasted grain and she ate and was satisfied and had some left. So... uh, Boaz calls her over during lunch. She'd been standing off at a distance, apparently, and tells her to sit with them and share their meal. This was not required by law. Again, those who were gleaning the fields uh, were were not to expect that kind of treatment from the field owners. This is a purely generous act. And she not only eats, but eats until she is satisfied or full. Again, the, the, uh, uh, the opposite of of empty not only does she eat till she full but she has some left over we hear in this uh, echoes of Jesus feeding the multitudes and having baskets of food left over God's generosity is pouring forth in abundance through Boaz Verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz commanded his servants, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves and do not insult her. Uh, so again, uh, commanding his servants, don't, don't mistreat her. Let her do this. Don't give her a hard time. Also, you shall purposely pull out for her some grain from the bundles and leave it that she may glean and do not rebuke her. So more than just, hey, whatever you drop, let her pick up. He says, actually, you need to drop some things on purpose for her. And when she goes to pick it up, don't rebuke her. Right? Again, nothing that he was required to do by the Israelite law, simply an act of kindness and generosity. Boaz... In, in doing this, is exhibiting and embodying the, the word that we talked about last week, chesed, right? God's covenant kindness, mercy, faithfulness, love, loyalty. He's, he's, he's demonstrating to her uh, what she has demonstrated to, to Naomi in terms of her, her loyalty and, and kindness. Um, and 
And I think because Boaz has received that kindness from God, he's then exhibiting it, that this idea that, that a kind and generous God is going to have a kind and generous people. That people who have received God's kindness and generosity are in turn going to be transformed to become kind and generous people. And we see example of that in, in Boaz. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. Now we don't know exactly how much an ephah is, but it's a lot. Um, she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. And she took it out and gave Naomi what she had left after she was satisfied. So she brings back uh, all of this food, right? Naomi's unaware of what's been going on all day. Um, When Ruth comes, she sees this huge amount of food that she's gleaned, plus the leftovers uh, that, that Ruth had from lunch. And so that's amazing. And, and we have, in, in some sense, we have a, a, a resolution to one of the tension points that's come uh, at the beginning of the book, was how are Ruth and Naomi going to eat? Well, we see Boaz has been extraordinarily generous and he's given them food and has told Ruth, make sure you stay here and, and, and glean in my field and you'll have enough food. We're like, whew, okay, they made it. But I don't think that's the, the climax of the chapter. I think that's coming next. Right? Because we might be tempted to think that this is the high point. Boaz is so generous, he's provided for Ruth and Naomi. Um, but we have to remember that one of the questions that we are left with at the beginning of the chapter is, who is Boaz? And why is he important? Right? The fact that he that, that, that the author begins the chapter with this statement about Boaz um, makes us think that, that we, we need to be on the lookout for why this guy is important. And, and I don't think it's just because he's a really nice guy. Right? We, have to, we have to answer that question, and I think that's the high point of the chapter. Right? This is the climax of the chapter. I think the the way that the narrator frames the interaction about Boaz at the beginning and in the end tells us something about what he thinks is most important and what he wants us to to see. Because it's it's going to be who Boaz is that proves to be so important in the next two chapters. So verse 19, in response to what uh, Ruth has brought, her mother-in-law then said to her, Where did you glean today? Where did you work? May he who took notice of you. So, uh, the, the the tension continues to build, right? Because we know who it is. We know who is he who took notice. Um, and Ruth knows who it is, but she doesn't know why he's important. Right. Um, she doesn't know about the the connection between him and Naomi, <clears throat> and notice that the narrator really waits until the last possible moment to reveal his name. Right. May he who took notice of you be blessed. He deserves a medal for what he did in providing you with food. 
And so she, Ruth, told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The name of the man, yes, with whom I worked, yes, today, yes, is, yes, yes, Boaz. There it is. There's the, the reveal. Now, and we know that, but now we, if we put ourselves within the narrative, now we, we see this wonderful reaction by Naomi. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed of the Lord, who has not withdrawn his kindness to the living and to the dead. So Naomi's you know, not just excited because Boaz gave him food. She is over the top. Um, and, and specifically references that, that kindness, again, this is, this is that word chesed, has been shown to the living, that is Naomi and Ruth, and to the dead. So, so Naomi's family, her husband and her sons. Well, how is it that this kindness has been shown to both her and to her family. How is it? Because all Boaz has done is provided food. How is it that God has shown his kindness through Boaz um, to not just to Naomi and Ruth and providing them food, but also to the dead? Also to, to her family, her, her, her husband and sons who have been dead and buried in Moab? What is... What does that mean? And I think what we see here is that Naomi recognizes that there is something more going on, something more important going on, than just that God has provided them food through Boaz. Right? Her disposition has changed from the end of chapter 1. Suddenly there's this glimmer of hope. At the end of chapter 1, Naomi's like, God's forgotten us. God brought me back empty. Right? She's not in a good place. And now her disposition changes, and she says, wait a minute. I see something now. There's a glimmer of hope. God, through the actions of Boaz, has not, has not in fact withdrawn his kindness. Has not withdrawn his covenant loyalty and faithfulness from Naomi. He never has. You say, well, well why? How is, how is it that that kindness is being shown through through Boaz, how can Naomi be so so sure? And then Naomi tells Ruth, you have to imagine Ruth's here, like, okay, well, Naomi, what's the big deal? You're so excited about this. It says, again, Naomi said to her, this man is our relative. Okay. Now, we've known that since verse 1. Ruth didn't know that, so that's new information for her, but that still doesn't necessarily explain why Naomi's so excited. And then she says, he's one of our closest relatives. Now, this is not a particularly great translation because it, I think it kind of misses the significance of the term. Our translation does not capture how important it is. Now, this word, this is the, the Hebrew word goel. Um, it, it's translated a bunch of different ways in different translations. So we have close relative. The NRSV has next of kin. The ESV has just redeemer. The NIV has guardian redeemer. The CSB and the NLT have family redeemer. The KJV has a near kinsman. 
And the, the Net Bible, the New English Translation, has Guardian of Family Interests. And I think that probably best captures uh, what's meant by the word. Guardian of Family Interests. Um, but, but often the, the word is associated with this term, kinsman redeemer. You may have heard that, particularly if you studied Ruth in the past. Kinsman redeemer. And, and it's sort of easy to say here that, well, this is how Boaz connects to Jesus. Just like Boaz is a redeemer, uh, Jesus is our redeemer. Now, I do think that in Boaz, we have a pattern that we see come to fulfillment in Jesus. But I don't think it's necessarily related to the idea of being a redeemer. The idea uh, here has a very different connotation in this context than it did for Paul and the other apostles who speak of us being redeemed, that is, brought out of slavery by Christ. That would be a lot more related to God being a redeemer, say, by bringing the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. Here, the idea of redemption means something a little bit different. Uh, Boaz uh, certainly does point to us uh, point us to Jesus. Yes, absolutely. But I don't think it's because Boaz is a kinsman redeemer necessarily, um, though his righteous and gracious actions in carrying out that duty do, in some sense, prefigure or foreshadow the character of, of Christ. Uh, so what was the, this, this guardian of family interests or, or kinsman redeemer? Well, in, in Israelite law, they had several purposes uh, they had a purpose of buying back hereditary property that had passed into the hands of people who were outside of the clan. So somebody dies and their their field ends up in somebody else's hands. The, the guardian of the family interests was responsible to purchase that land back. So that would be redeeming it, buying it back. Um, they had the responsibility of purchasing the freedom of people from the clan who had sold themselves into slavery because of their poverty or debt. They had the responsibility of tracking down and executing the murderers of near relatives. That sounds like it would be a, a, a good movie, but uh, that's not what we see here uh, in Ruth. Um, they had the responsibility of, of receiving restitution money on behalf of a, of a dead uh, family member who was the victim of a crime. And they had the responsibility of ensuring that justice was served in a lawsuit involving a relative. So it's somebody who is very important in the family. He had a very so Boaz in in this role had a very important responsibility towards Elimelech's families, and it's perhaps one of the reasons why he's so exceedingly generous to Ruth in particular. Uh, but Naomi's excitement indicates that she might be thinking there's something more that can happen here. Now, at this point, we don't get a clear picture of what that is. We're going to in the next chapter. Um, at this point. We just see that Ruth and Naomi now have a, a, a close relative who is going to act as a guardian for them uh, and a benefactor for them because of uh, not just his place in the family, but also his faithfulness to obey the laws of God uh, because of his faith. Uh, and so we see Naomi is, is over the moon because she understands that that. Uh, Boaz may have a, a significant role to play in uh, restoring uh, what she has lost, in refilling 
uh, her emptiness. Um, and, and she has an idea, I think, of, what, of how that's going to, to happen, but we don't, we don't get there quite yet. So right now we just see that there's this glimmer of hope. He's going to be really important somehow because of his role in the family. He's more than just a relative. Uh, but we don't see exactly what that is until the next chapter. Okay. So then we move on, and, and, chap and chapter um, 2 comes to a close. This sort of is the, the action, the, the falling action, the resolution that leads us into the next chapter. Then Ruth the Moabite has said, Furthermore, he said to me, You should stay close to my servants until they have finished all my harvest. Now, again, just in case you forgot, Ruth, by the way, is a Moabitess. Ruth responds to this news of, of Naomi saying, by the way, this guy is the guardian of our family interests, uh, with, oh, well, he said you should stay close to my servants until they finished all my harvest. Ruth at this point is thinking, this guy is great. He's going to make sure we have enough food. Na it's like she, she misses this idea that, that Naomi has, that there could be something more than just uh, uh, provision of food, right? Uh, she's not aware, maybe, of the long-term implications of what's happened. Um, for Naomi, however, there's this glimmer of hope. We're left, we're left thinking at this point, maybe this is not going to end as badly as it appeared it would at the end of chapter 1. So Naomi responds to Ruth and, and says, Okay, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his maids, so that others do not fall upon you, in another field. So thinking that now there's some long-term uh, potential for provision for her family, um, Naomi makes sure to tell Ruth, yes, keep keep going out, right? Go out with his maids. Keep going. Make sure you're there. Um, I think certainly that, that is, uh, of course, because she wants Naomi or uh, Ruth to be protected, uh, absolutely. But I think um, we also see in the next chapter that that there's more than that. It's more than that that is leading her to, to, to tell Ruth, make sure you stick close to Boaz. Um, so verse 23, so she stayed close by the maids of Boaz in order to glean until the end of the barley harvest and the wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. So we have a resolution in, in, in one sense that Naomi and Ruth are provided for, and yet there's this turning point that's been that's revealed this very important fact that Boaz is one of the legal guardians of Naomi's family, and so Naomi sees this glimmer of hope. Um, God, in His secret uh, providence, has orchestrated these events to to bring about His purposes, and now we're beginning to see uh, exactly how that's uh, happening. But we don't have a clear picture yet. It's not it's not clear. Uh, what's going to happen yet, and and it's not clear that Ruth even really understands the role that she's going to play in it yet. We're still left with questions. If if um, Boaz is this guardian of the family interests, uh, why hasn't he he uh, really strongly acted on those uh, those responsibilities yet? He's been exceedingly generous, but he's not exactly done some of the things uh, that the law would require of of that person. We know Boaz is a good and godly man, so think, well, well, why is that? What's going on with that? And we still have the question, well, what's going to become of Naomi and her family line? Is there truly hope that she who says she was empty might be filled again? So the plot thickens as we move into chapter 3.